Well, hi everyone. If you don't know me, my name is Simon. Um, I'll have the privilege of sharing God's word with you this week as Peter's out um, celebrating the wonderful opening of four new churches in the diocese uh, Second Thessalonians. Now, as we come into this final section of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, I feel one major question is left hanging in the air here. The Thessalonians, they're surrounded by persecution and hardship and this figure of the man of lawlessness looms over them. We talked about that last week. Yes, his defeat is assured, but still here they stand in the middle of the storm. The trouble and the strife and the persecutions remain this stark reality for them. And so the question dangles there. As they suffer, how on earth are they supposed to stand firm? What are they supposed to do as the very real pain of living on this side of eternity stares them in the face? How can you possibly stand firm? I stand here tonight and I look at this of people who have suffered heartbreak, grief, sickness, loss, hardship. I see people who have suffered for their faith, people who have lost friends, who have given up relationships. And the Thessalonians, each of us at some point has been sitting at the bottom of the pit crying out, how God, how do we stand firm in the middle of this? And the wonderful thing about this question is that this is something we can empathise with. It's one of the biggest questions we'll be required to grapple with over and over again throughout our lives. And so this section of Thessalonians speaks into the darkness. It cuts through the shadow cast by this man of lawlessness and extends a wonderful hope. The gospel helps us to endure through the hardship. First, it gives us a present harvest that leads us to thanksgiving. Second, a future hope that leads to steadfastness. And third, an internal encouragement that leads to strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Help us tonight as each of us comes with our struggles and our trials to look to the precious gift you've given us in the gospel. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So what's Paul's first response in the midst of evil? He recognises God's goodness and the abundance of what he's already been given. He gives thanks. Now, this isn't some saccharine platitude like count your blessings. I mean, how frustrating is that when you're going through a tragedy in life and you reach out to someone you care for and they say, well, think about all the good things you have. Count your blessings. Other people have it worse. Just be thankful. Like now... Not only do you have tragedy to work through, but you've also got to feel guilty too uh, because you're not working on some chocolate plantation in Ghana. Paul isn't doing that. 
He's not telling the Thessalonians to keep their chins up and smile and think of all the good things that God has given them. No. Let's be clear. Paul was beaten in the streets in Thessalonica. The suffering and persecution was real and tangible. And so there has to be something substantially greater to compare to that kind of suffering. And so Paul is talking about something really specific here. What on earth could make it plausible to be thankful in the midst of this kind of suffering? Read with me from verse 13. But we always ought, because God chose you as first fruits to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. The ultimate hope here is the truth. It's the gospel. This is a foil, a direct opposition to what we saw last week. While these persecutors might feel like they're prospering in the short term, they're ultimately suffering a delusion and caught in a lie. But the Thessalonians have been saved through belief in the truth. The gospel is what allows them to stand firm in suffering. Not some small platitude, but nothing less than the world-shaking reality of Christ's work to redeem them from sin and death. And how should they see this wonderful blessing? Well, let's examine the language closely here. He calls the Thessalonians first fruits, the first pick of a cusp of a new harvest. Now, we can take this as a fairly standard agricultural metaphor that you probably understand, but I, I think there's actually more going on here. If we look to our Old Testaments, we'll see that the festival of the first fruits was more than just a celebration of harvest. It was this beautiful recitation of God's redemption and goodness. You would come to the altar during the first fruits festival with the first part of your harvest in a little basket. And then you would make this public declaration. I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. And following that, you'd, be, you'd publicly recite the whole story of God's promise to Abraham and the people's salvation from Egypt all the way up to entering the promised land. And finally, you'd have a big party from Deuteronomy 26.10. Place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down before him. Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things your Lord God has given you and your household. This is a celebration of abundance, of community, of prosperity. But importantly, it's a celebration of redemption and grace. And you bring the outsider and the priests together with you to experience the joy and bounty and wonder of God's redemption. Isn't that wonderful? God ordained land he's given them, a divinely ordained party. Because it points them to his goodness and his grace. As he reached into Egypt and redeemed them from slavery and gave them an abundant land that they didn't deserve. And so by using the term 
first fruits. Paul draws on that concept here. But interestingly now, his joy is those he's reached in the gospel. This new harvest is brought not by rain and soil, but through the sanctifying work of the spirit and belief in the truth. (coughs) The gospel grows this new harvest. And this harvest is far greater than the almonds and the dates and the figs honed from the soil of the fertile crescent. This is a harvest of people set aside for the kingdom. In the ancient festival of the first fruits, the people were to remember how God redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. But that was a shadow of what was to come. A once and for all time redemption from sin and death. And so by drawing on this image of the first fruits, he says, even as they suffer, they should celebrate. Joy in response to the incredible history-altering abundance God has granted them in bringing sinners to himself through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The harvest is bountiful, and the harvest is us. And so even in the midst of suffering, the Thessalonians can still have joy and can still stand firm because to live in the truth is the most remarkable sign of God's goodness and provision. Through the truth of the gospel, God gives us a harvest that leads to thanksgiving. We need this truth every day as we suffer persecution and loss and grief and trial and pain Let's not make mundane the great, greatest blessing anyone can have. We need to remember that we are part of a harvest that marks the ultimate victory of human existence. That all the ancient Israelites celebrated in the harvest festival has been fulfilled to an infinitely greater degree in our salvation through Jesus Christ. We can stand firm because the gospel helps us to endure hardship. So first, he gives us a bountiful present harvest. And he gives us a future hope that leads to steadfastness. Like before, this gift is rooted in the truth of the gospel. Paul reminds the Thessalonians that their gift isn't just here in the present, but it serves a greater purpose. There's even more of this truth to celebrate. This abundant harvest is being set aside for a wondrous future hope. Read with me from verse 14. He called you to this through our gospel, that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The current reality is sanctification, but the ultimate hope is resurrection glory. By means of hearing the truth, a final destiny is secured, being united to Jesus in his glory. Again, Paul draws our minds back to the Old Testament here. Think of Moses, who asked only to witness briefly a fraction of God's glory. A glory which filled the temple but was cut off from the community. A glory that couldn't be shared with sinful people. But now, in this reality, they have a hope that the ultimate fulfillment of their calling is to share in Christ's glory. 
Jesus as the divine son shares in the glory of the father and then united to them through their belief in him, they now share that glory too. And nothing else can matter. So what should their response be to all this? Well, read with me from verse 15. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we passed on to you whether by word or mouth of mouth or by letter. Ultimately, the exhortation here is to stand firm, to keep going, to withstand the suffering, because the truth is so much greater than the current reality. The truth of the gospel presents them with new identities as the first fruits of this bountiful harvest like the world has never seen and the hope of future glory which they longed to have access. Paul responds to current suffering with grand spiritual truths that break into the darkness of reality like a floodlight. The reality of suffering becomes small in comparison to the reality of their greater hope. Through Jesus, they have access to the glory of the living God who created the stars. And this is ultimately kind of strange here. The the Thessalonians are struggling. They're persecuted. They're grieving their loved ones who have died. They're in fear of some great enemy. And then Paul comforts them by offering them theology. Let's be honest, if you were in the midst of suffering and someone offered you a theology textbook to cheer you up, you might be tempted to hit them with it. But the thing is, to get this uh, is to know the gospel. The truth of the gospel is so wonderful that if we want to withstand suffering when it comes, we are equipped with the best tools possible to see a glory that far outweighs anything that we could suffer in this life. And so the more we preach this truth to ourselves and to each other, the more we walk in it, the more we become acquainted with it and allow ourselves to be overawed by it, the more we realize we have a great harvest in which to celebrate and an incomparable future glory to look forward to, the more it makes suffering plausible. And there's a practical element to this too. He calls the Thessalonians to stand firm. And then he follows things they've received. To stand firm, to not waver in the midst of the storm, is to not waver from their belief, their theology, to protect the gospel. Remember, the Thessalonians have been surrounded by false teaching. And so at every corner, there are lies threatening them to tear them away from the truth. And so to stand firm, to hold fast to the one singular truth of the gospel, the truth that leads them to an acknowledgement of the lordship of Jesus, the truth that unites them to him, the truth that brings a bountiful harvest and gives them hope, that is what will see them through. This church here represents the very tangible reality of what it means to stand firm in the truth, isn't it? To hold fast to the things we've been taught, 
by taking the risk of leaving comfort and security and establishment to instead hold fast to good teaching and to the truth of the gospel. That's one way to stand firm even in the darkness. And you can feel it, can't you? This wonderful, flourishing community that shines bright even in the face of darkness. And it's because of instruction, but it's not easy. The world will always rage against the truth, but to cling to it is to stand firm. The gospel helps us to endure through hardship. First, it gives us a present harvest that leads to thanksgiving, and second, a future hope that leads to steadfastness. And then we turn to something decidedly gentler. Yes, it helps us in the suffering to bask in the glory and the hope of the gospel, but we're given more than just a truth written in words, more than a future in which we can hope. Each of us who is in Christ is united with him right now. And so in the midst of the suffering, we also have this gentle hand to lead us through, his love and his grace. And it's all present by, presented by Paul in this beautiful intercessory prayer. He says from verse 16, May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts. And then they're left to do this on their own. In the midst of their suffering, Paul prays that both the Father and the Son would bolster them through their crisis. It's a beautiful image, isn't it? tender, loving care of a God who understands our suffering and provides us with eternal encouragement. That's important, eternal encouragement. Paul here describes an encouragement that outlasts the suffering, something we can rely on both now and beyond the affliction of this age into the glory to come. The eternal encouragement of God the Father and God the Son connects both our harvest and our glory. Paul's expressing that the Thessalonians' union with Christ gives them a comfort and a strength that will carry them through the totality of their experience with God. It's both power now and hope to come. This is what it's all about. God is good and with us now and forever. And it's important here to see what this means for the daily suffering of the Thessalonians because the language here takes us and pulls us back down to the ground. Look more closely at, and they are to be strengthened in every good deed and word. There's an imminence, a deliberate imminence to that language, isn't there? We focused on this broader picture of God's great redemption of humanity. We've focused on the future glory of his people. But now Paul brings a prayer of encouragement down to the ground level. This intimate and endless encouragement that will strengthen them in everything they say and everything they do. A life lived with a good God. 
How is it plausible to persevere under such duress? Well, we have a good God who sees us through, who encourages us and gives us strength. All this theology, all this argumentation and reassurance is ultimately in vain outside the work of our good God who encourages us and is with us every step of the way. And so our final tool in the midst of suffering is to rely on God's generosity and kindness and encouragement to see us through. We need this truth because we need to pray this prayer too. That's the good news of the gospel, that the good news of the gospel is that through Jesus, we receive not just a future hope, and so we can rely on him to pull us through, to cry out for him to intercede in our suffering and bring a gentle and kind and generous hand of encouragement to strengthen our hearts through the hardest parts of our lives. The gospel helps us to endure through hardship. It gives us a present harvest that leads to thanksgiving, a future hope that leads to steadfastness, and an internal encouragement that leads to strength. And so, in conclusion of all of this, Paul makes a request for prayer. And we move from the loftier realities of God's salvific work and come to a simple prayer request. And so we get to this distilled into something decidedly more practical. But ultimately, these truths are all baked in. The gospel is still at the center of his practical ministerial work. From the beginning of chapter 3, as for other matters, as brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you. And pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone is faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts in God's love and Christ's perseverance. Ultimately, this prayer draws this whole thing together and reminds the Thessalonians of the most important central principle they have here, the message of the Lord. This is the central truth. This is what they should be concerned with, the gospel and its spread. Because without the gospel, they have no harvest to be thankful for. Without the gospel, they have no future hope on which to hold fast. Without the gospel, they have no relationship with the God who encourages eternally. Without the gospel, they don't make it. And so Paul asks them to pray first and foremost that the gospel would be spread because that is the most important and central focus of his mission. His request is in simple three parts. Uh, pray for the spread of the message, pray for the bearers of this message, and then pray, pray that Christ would be at work in all of this. Ultimately, to overcome the suffering and see through to the end, they need the gospel and they need to bring it to others. So first, Paul reminds them of the importance of this message and the need for it to be honored. 
He reminds them of what the gospel has done in their lives and their community. And this is to spur them on to want to see it transform form others as it's transformed them. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured, just as it was with you. So, so too should we be spurred on as to see the gospel transform form others in our wider community as it's transformed us. As we think of these wonderful things, as we think to the celebration of this grand harvest and the hope of future glory and of our relationship with a God who encourages, as we give thanks for all the wonderful things we have as we walk in the truth of the gospel, Let's be spurred on to want to see it spread rapidly and be on it because that is our ultimate mission in the midst of suffering. Second, Paul asked them to pray for the bearers of this message. Last week we learned that, uh, that we don't need to. And so as accusers and persecutors stand against Paul, he folds this prayer in with the mission to see the gospel spread. Pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil people, for not everyone has faith, but the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. And so, second, so too should we, as we face suffering and persecution, we should hold fast to the gospel. Pray for deliverance for the sake of the gospel and continue on because of the gospel. The gospel, in all its joy and hope and encouragement, is what allows us to stand firm and see the suffering through. And finally, Paul rests in the assurance that God will see him and them through to the end. He has confidence that the Thessalonians will stand firm because the task is in God's hands and not his. We have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your heart in God's love and Christ's perseverance. And so finally, the gospel assures us of our right relationship we can come before him in confidence and ask for his encouragement. As we struggle to do this, to wade through the mire and the muck, to pull through the pain and the suffering and the persecution and the loss and the grief, we have a God who provides. So let's pray that he would direct our hearts to his love and Christ's perseverance. Break grief and sickness, loss and hardship. I see people who have suffered for their faith in many ways, who have lost friends, who have given up relationships and jobs and a comfortable church for faith. Just like the Thessalonians, each of us has been sitting at the bottom of the pit crying out, how God, how do we stand firm? But I also see people who are loved deeply by Jesus Christ. People for whom he suffered and died for their sins and rose again in glory for their justification. People who are just a fraction of the bountiful harvest of citizens in this great kingdom. 
people who have a profound hope in a future glory and a people who have a right relationship with the God with God so that he can offer each one of you eternal encouragement if you're sitting here tonight and you don't have that I'd encourage you to investigate because it will change your life please talk to a Christian that you trust but if you do have faith in the Lord Jesus, the truth of the gospel is yours on which to hold fast. So stand firm in the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to stand firm in the gospel. As we continue to suffer in this life on this side of eternity, Help us to see the wonderful hope that you give us in a future glory. Help us to see the wonderful gift that you've given us in the now that we have been harvested for your kingdom, that we have a right relationship with you, and that we have internal encouragement. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.